Thank you for choosing Miniaturist of Baptist Church podcast. We hope you benefit from this message. If you'd like to learn more about Miniaturist of Baptist Church, please visit our website at miniaturistachurch.org. some years that I've been in a Baptist church on a Sunday morning. I was, uh, I was raised in the Baptist church, and um, I can remember sleeping under the pews. Um, my mother said, as long as I was quiet, you know, that, that was all that really mattered. So, um, But thank you for having me. I move a little bit when I talk, so I'll try to project as much as I can for when I'm not near the microphone, but um, everybody's just been so welcoming, and, and so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Will and I have just gotten to know each other, really, um, over the last year or so, and so um, I was very um, humbled that uh, he would think of me and to stand in his place. And so, a um, little bit about me, I'm a football coach down at Crown College, um, and I've been there about 10 years. Um, I'm the defensive coordinator there and the assistant head coach, and so a couple of times over my my time there, I've been the interim head coach when the head coach has to step away, and so I guess today I'm the interim interim pastor. So um, so that's a new role for me. But um, as was said earlier, my my wife and my kids are here, um, my family, and so uh, I'm very thankful that they they gave me the blessing to do this. Um, to kind of take away some time and, and prepare some words. And, um, and, and yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. So um, what I wanted to, Will has told me a little bit about your church. I didn't really know much about it, even being so close to it. And, and so he's told me a little bit about his time here and, and some of the things that you guys are going through as a church. And so I just wanted to be encouraging to you. Um, I, uh, I had been reading Joshua... Uh, months ago in the preparation for my son, knowing that his name was going to be Joshua, I wanted to read the book again and, and, and just kind of um, bone up on my, uh, my knowledge of it all. So, um, but as I was working through it, I, you know, I, I've always admired Joshua, which is why we picked the name. Um, and I, I came to an interesting, interesting point in my reading. Um, as Joshua transitions to the book of Judges, you see two kind of um, two scriptures that are very, very similar between the two books, but also have a, a great difference. And I think right now, not your church, but the church in general, is at a, at a really interesting point in history. And, um, and so I'll kind of talk about it here and, and show you what I mean. And so in Joshua 24... Um, towards the end, it talks about the death of Joshua. And it says, uh, Sometime later, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in his land of inheritance at Timnath Surah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the days of Joshua, and of the elders who outlived him, and who had experienced all the works of the Lord had done for Israel. And we just talked about, in Psalms 105, they talked about telling the people of all the great things that God had done. And so, you know, time and time again already through this message, or, or through today's service, I've thought about the things I'm going to say, and how you guys are already saying them. So it's, it's, it's awesome. But you think about Joshua 24 there, and that's something that I would want said of me, that he lived a, a great life, 
And the people immediately after him knew all the great things that God had done. You know, that generation that even after he had died, they knew of all things. But you literally flip your Bible a page and you get to Judges 2. And the first part's going to be a repeat. Judges 2, verses 8 through 10 here is what I'm going to read. Um, And it says, And Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Okay, so we know they're talking about the same Joshua. They buried him in his land of inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, they died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And so, what a tragedy, uh, travesty, excuse me, that this generation that came up after the initial generation had no clue what God had done. They missed it. They missed the boat. And part of it fell on the previous generation, in my opinion. You've got to tell the people, right? And so part of my job is I I coach 18 to 22-year-old men. And um, a lot of them, even coming to a Christian college, have a really, really poor perception of who God is, who they should be as men, all those sorts of things. And so I take this personally that I have to do a good job at raising this next generation. So my encouragement to you is, is to do the same. You know, you have, um, you have children, you probably, some of you have grandchildren, and, and just people in your community. Continue to speak of all the good things that God has done, and what He has done for us, and what He's done for you as a church. What a tremendous history that your church has here. And what, uh, you know, I'm just like amazed by the stained glass and all that sort of stuff. It's so beautiful. And I don't go to a church like that on Sundays and get to see it quite as much. So, um, but that's my encouragement for you, that you would be able to do that. And so, um, you know, this, to a lot of you, is just a way to make a phone call or, or reach people. But what I have found for the young people is it's how they tell their story. Okay, whether it's on social media or whatever, this is how they tell stories. This is how they hear stories. And so a lot of the time, the stories they hear on here are not usually the Holy Spirit. Okay? They're usually different stories. Okay? Which means that we as a church body have to do a better job at telling God's story and communicating that through them. Because if this is the only storyteller they hear from, they're going to be judges too and not Joshua 24. And so that's my encouragement, not only for myself each and every day, but for you um, to bless these young people, to to rally around them, to teach them all the great things that God has done. And and yeah, so that's my encouragement for you guys. Um, You know, I think it not only speaks generationally in time, Okay, and, and not just the good things that God has done, I don't mean to harp on that, but also how they think. That's the, that's the big thing that I found, the 18 to 22 year olds or the kids that I work with each and every day. How they think is different than, than how they probably should think. Okay, and what I mean by that, and, and I kind of changed the, um, the title to today's message. I'll have the t- text pastor Will when I get done. But um, to think more with a kingdom vision rather than a worldly vision. And, and a lot of the young people that I work with, they think with a worldly vision. Even the Christian kids that I work with, they think much more worldly and how um, it's more important to have the world 
bless what you're doing and, and, and be happy with what you're doing than almost for God to be happy with what you're doing. And it's a sad state of affairs, in my opinion. But that's, that's the key in, in what we're raising up and what we're teaching and, and what we're telling these kids. Not only the great things that God has done, but we need to train them up in how they should be thinking and how they should be behaving and all those sorts of things. And I'm sure many of you already do that, but I want to encourage you to continue to do that because that's the biggest need right now, in my opinion, um, with young people. And so... Um, in preparing for this message, years and years ago, the church I attended to actually had a, um, a movement that they called Kingdom Vision. And they put the bumper stickers on the car and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, they were building a new church building, and so it was a big push. And so I actually reached out to the pastor and asked him uh, his opinion on the Kingdom Vision, since I knew he had done so much of it. And this is a quote from... Um, from Pastor Marty Bergman, who uh, was my pastor back in New Jersey. He said, Many well-intentioned believers are focusing on the wrong issues. As Christians, our number one issue is Jesus Christ. We must always make Him the main thing. Political differences and prejudice issues should not divide us. When, uh, when they do, we will be defeated in our objective of making the main thing truly the main thing. In the kingdom of heaven, no one will ask, What color were you? What political party were you? But you will be asked, did you advance the kingdom of God? And so I think about the kingdom vision versus the worldly vision, and that just truly resonates with me. That we have to be thinking with that kingdom vision each and every day, and not with a worldly vision. And so, um, so that's kind of how our, our talk will be today. Um, all too often... We think with a worldly vision, and, and I, I do this as much as anybody. I think about worldly vision stuff when I should be thinking about kingdom vision stuff. And, um, and there's a, a big issue with that. And the biggest issue that I have found in, in what I was researching, what I was talking about, when I think with a worldly vision, or we think with a worldly vision, we immediately conflict with a kingdom vision, okay, which is a problem. Sin is separation from God. So if I'm thinking worldly, I, I am almost, at that moment, sinning. I am separating myself from God. His vision is different than mine, and so it's difficult for me to somehow not be sinning when I am thinking differently than God. Okay? And point number two, when we miss on the kingdom vision, so that was kind of step A, step B, when I am missing on the kingdom vision, I'm missing on all the blessings that God has for me. Everything that He has in store for me. And so, um, a little bit about me, um, you know, like I said, I worked at Crown College, and, and I came up as a football coach, and initially, I was part-time. And as a part-time football coach, you don't get paid like Nick Saban, you get paid $2,000, okay? Not a lot for a uh, newlywed to, to live off of. And so, at that time, we were newlyweds. And so, I got paid in my first coaching year, $2,000. And um, my wife was very supportive of me and, and how I felt I was called the coach. Um, the next year I got a pay bump. I got up to $3,000. Okay? And so for about five to six years, I coached under these stipends. And, and um, I made um, kind of some side jobs and some things like that to help 
Um, but my wife was really the breadwinner. She was a, she's a registered nurse and, and, you know, worked a lot of long hours, worked nights and things like that. But I had reached uh, kind of my own personal prideful breaking point. And, you know, I, I, had, I had put a, a timeline on my career. And I said, if I am not a defensive coordinator by the time that I am age 30, I am going to go find something different. I'll go do something different because this must just not be for me. And so I began to apply for jobs and seek out work and, and you know, go here and go there. And it actually talks about a, a passage in James 4, um, talks about, you know, James challenges us and says, who are you to really say that you're going to go here and work here and make this amount of money and then you're going to go to this town and do the same thing? And he talks about you are just a mist, right? Um, and man, did that resonate with me. But at the time, I thought I knew better. I had the worldly vision. I know what I'm doing. So I'm applying to jobs. I'm interviewing for jobs. No job offers. Can't go anywhere. Um, and... Uh, that, that age 30 started to creep up on me. And I started to look at the calendar a little bit. And I had such I had a great work environment at Crown. I had coach that I, I really respect and loved, um, like a father. I had a defensive coordinator who was ahead of me, who taught me so many things football-wise and work-wise. Um, it really was a blessing. But they were both very, very well established in their roles. They, they weren't going to leave. They had families all those sorts of things. So it was almost like, you know, you were, it was a dead end there. There was no way that I, I would have ever been full-time there at Crown. Um, and so, again, that was a big motivator for me that it's just not going to happen here. I've got to go somewhere else. Um, and our defensive coordinator, his wife, um, had a kind of a family disease where um, the, the weather here in Minnesota didn't, didn't, wasn't very conducive for her bones and her joints and things like that. And um, really, at the drop of a hat, he took a job in Arizona because the dry heat was better for her. They moved down there. And I think I was 29 years old and 10 months, and I was named the defensive coordinator at Crown. And two months away from giving up. So um, it was really, really... Um, Obviously not my vision that did that, but it was Christ's. And so that really, um, that's where I could really step back and say, okay, I am totally being guided by God. This is not, you know, I am not the, the puppet master here. I am not in charge, and that's got to be okay. And it's better than okay, because it's... It's what he has intended for us. And so that kind of brings me to our main text for today, which is Matthew 20. And we're going to talk. And, and so as we were preparing for this message, Will and I, we kind of looked at a few different scriptures. And this was one that, that just continued to speak to us. And so I'm going to read the entire, the entire portion, verses 1 through 16 here. And then I'm going to talk about it. Um, so... Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to the vineyard. Then going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the market and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again. About the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. 
And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired, uh, excuse me, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These... Uh, these last worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us, who have been born and burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. I am not allowed to do, am I not allowed to do with what I chose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Excuse me. So right away, uh, the, the thing that stood out to me, right off the bat, Jesus establishes the difference between he and I. The master and the laborers. He's very quick to tell you there's a difference between us. Because at... Throughout the text, you're going to see that the laborers start to think, well, maybe I know better than the master. But right away, God sets this. Thank you. God sets this and sets the difference between us. I am the master, you are the laborers. There's a difference there. Okay? And, um, and he also puts possession on his vineyard. It's his vineyard. It's not ours. Sometimes I think, and, and I think this way too, because Christ has given us ownership, okay, and, and ownership as a laborer, I start to think that I am as good as the master. It's my vineyard. But it's not. Just because I've been invited to work with it, and I've been invited to, to um, help with its fruits and, and everything that's going to come of it, does not mean that it's mine inherently. It just means that I get to be a part of it. And that's got to be okay. And so right off the bat, like I said, he establishes there's a difference between you and I. I am the master and you are the laborers. In verse 4, I like the, the verbiage that he uses. Okay, In verse 4 at the end, he says, I will pay you what is right, not what is fair. A lot of people think, I'm going to get what is fair. And fair to me, as, as I kind of thought about it, especially speaks to today's day and age, there's a lot of people grumbling about what they think is fair, or what they think is justice. And it's their justice. It's not God's justice. It's their fairness. It's not God's fairness. God will always do what is right. It's not going to do what you think is fair. Because what you think is fair is your worldly vision. It's not His kingdom vision. And He can't fathom to think like us. Because if he did, he wouldn't be God. The master, God, only knows what's right. And actually, um, I looked in the King James Version, because uh, I guess everybody thinks they need to trim up King James, but I don't think that's really fair to him and his version. But um, many a couple of times later in the text, he reiterates as he goes back to the marketplace, he reiterates again, I'm going to pay you what's right. 
but they, you know, I have the ESV here, and, and they trim it up a little bit. But time and time again, he goes back to that same phrasing. I'll pay you what is right. I'll pay you what is right. And I think, you know, how important that is that we don't miss that. That he's going to do what's right and right by his mind and not by ours. And that's what's good. And now as I, as I relate to kind of what I, I opened with and, and what we've talked about, is right to me is kingdom-minded. And fair would be worldly. If I think about what's fair and I should get what's fair, and I talked about I, I worked really hard. From a 23-year-old to 29 and 10 months, I worked really hard. And I thought that it would only be fair that I get what I say. Instead of doing what I was supposed to. Learning those lessons. I missed, thankfully I, I, I went back, and thought about it. But I was missing all the blessings God was giving me along the way. All the lessons I was learning in my work. All the things. I watched two men who, who um, really resembled work ethic and things like that. And a care for their players. And if I had just chased my worldly vision, I would have missed all those lessons. I would have missed all those things that were important. Those guys also showed me what it was like to be a father. Um, the head coach had older daughters who were about ready for college and to see, to watch him be a father to those two girls and, and you know, cut out on, not cut out on work, but make sure that he was going to get to their sporting event or their school event or whatever because he was going to be a present father. Where the guy who was ahead of me had young children and to see how he was invested, he was involved in, um, you know, their baseball leagues and things like that. I got to see what it was like to be a truly caring father before I had it for myself. And if I had missed those lessons, who knows where I would have, uh, or what kind of father I would have been. Um, but I, I just think about I would have missed so many of those um, lessons and what turned into blessings had I chased what was my worldly vision and what I thought was more important than God's kingdom vision. And... Uh, and, and it's an interesting thing about Jesus. I'm always fascinated by Him. When I was growing up, I, nobody taught me this, but I just thought that all these chapters must have been like, you know, I mean, to heal somebody and then heal somebody again, you got to do like probably that in a week's time. I mean, you can't be doing that on the same day. So like I thought about chapters and I thought about, man, this must span over the course of really his 30-some years of life. There's no way that he could be doing this in you know a two, three-year span of his ministry. But obviously that's wrong. And so... Um, so all you have to do is really um, to reiterate this kingdom man or this kingdom vision and worldly vision, all you have to do is go back to chapter 19, a few verses before 20. And, um, and he's talking to the rich young man who asked him how he gets to heaven. And, and he explains it to him. But really what I want to talk about is, is he takes aside his disciples afterwards and... Um, and he, he kind of connects with them and, and tells them about it. And so I'm going to pick up in verse, um, verse 23, it looks like. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But this is where it really hits at home. In verse 25, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus wrote my message for me. With man, with your worldly vision and your ideas, cannot do it, cannot happen. With God and our perfect vision, we can make it happen. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, that's what it's all about, in my opinion. Okay? He takes, he, he walks along the earth and he's trying to change everybody's mindset because the mindset has gotten so far off base with whatever religious people he connects with and he's got to change the thinking of their minds because they're so caught up, you know, some of them are so caught up in the strictness of the law or the difference between holy people and the sinners. And their, their mind, their construct is all worldly. And all Jesus is doing during his ministry is trying to change that mindset. Time and time again, he's changing that mindset. I think about um, the time that the paralytic is presented to him. And uh, I think it's in Mark, they talk about him being lowered through the roof. Um, and and what, a, what a scene that would have been. And Jesus sees the paralytic man. And the first thing he says to him is, I forgive your sins. And I think about, you know, I, I grew up, I'm still kind of young, so I think kind of in that, in that movie kind of scene and stuff like that, so I can really visualize it. I'd be really pissed if I was that, if I was that paralyzed man. I came here to walk, and you're forgiving my sins, and that's not why I came here. And my worldly vision would have taken over, and I would have told him, you can keep that. I want, I want to walk. Right? Because I would think with a worldly vision that the only thing that I want is I want to walk. And Jesus says, forget your body. I'm going to make you eternal. Isn't that better? But in my mind, as the paralyzed man, no, 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 no. I'll take the walking. You keep the eternal because I don't really know much about that. But um, how amazing that is that he has to constantly, time after time, flip over the thought process of you guys are thinking worldly. You're thinking now. You know, if somebody had a broken arm and I prayed over them and the bone was fixed, man, how amazing that would be. But Jesus is restoring their eternal body. And that is so much better than a broken arm being fixed or a paralyzed man being able to walk. And how amazing that is. And that's the kingdom vision. That's what we have to align with. And so, um, you know, we, we battle this mind construct all the time worldly and kingdom and worldly and kingdom and um, and for me as I as I wrote my notes today I really wanted to stay away from sport metaphors as much as possible but um, again I'll come back to one more and this will be the last one I promise but Sundays growing up to me they were always game day you, you get up you, um, you know, you're going to get dressed. You're going to get yourself as a kid. You kind of got to get yourself psyched to go to church. You got to get ready, okay? And then that was the game. 
That was the whole thing about the week. That was the build-up. Did it. Boom. I'm done. Sunday afternoon. Football's on. We got some good food going. Bang. Done. But as I got older and really started thinking with a kingdom mind, if I stick with the sports metaphor, church is really the locker room. It's where the coach is giving the pep talk and game days once we walk out those doors. It's game day from the rest of Sunday to the following Sunday. That's our game. That's our event. That's where we're supposed to be giving our all, and, and that's the game. And how we affect the community and all those sorts of things. And in my mind, it was completely reversed. This is where the game was, and I shook hands, and I did the right thing, and maybe I gave my offering, and I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. Boom, I'm done with the game, I'm out. But how backwards that was for me to think that really this is where I get built up. This is where I get encouraged. This is where my cup is overfilled, and now I go out, and the overfilling just spills out into the community. It spills out to everybody around me that they know, man, there's something different about that guy. And at the end of the week, like Jesus, when the harvest was plentiful and the workers were few, he was exhausted when he said that. He was absolutely exhausted. I think he had just performed three miracles. He was tired. That's why the harvest was so plentiful. He said, I could do this all day. You bring me lame and lame and lame. I'm exhausted. I need your help. That's our game day. Go out and be those workers that are few. And so, um, you know, all these sorts of things, it, it, it can be difficult sometimes because we have this human brain that, that wants, to, wants to work. But like I said at the beginning, God, God entitled us by choosing us as his laborers. I, I thought about the early text as he went to this marketplace. How did he pick who were the laborers he was going to pick in the first hour? Did he pick the strongest? I don't know. Maybe it's tough. At a, I've never worked at a vineyard. It's a tough, hard work. You've got you to be strong. Maybe, you know. I don't know how he chose. But he did choose certain specific laborers. And, and they were chosen. And now they, they feel that sense of entitlement. Right? And, and creeping into their minds is that they should get kind of a, a piece of the say, right? That they should be um, entitled to that. And so in verses 5 through, or excuse me, 10 through 15, it just kind of speaks again to really who gets to decide. And so I'll reread some of that text in, in verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive each... Um, but, I'm sorry, they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. Okay? So they already set themselves up by failure for thinking that they knew better. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, Those who worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's their entitlement right away. We worked harder. We did, you know, we worked since the dawn of the day. These people only worked an hour, and you're going to give them the same thing you gave us, and that's unfair. And there's that word, unfair or fair. It's worldly. When we blur the lines of our roles from laborer to master and those deciding factors, that's where kind of the entitlement moves its ugly head. We blur those lines and problems start popping up. Same thing happens in your life. When you start blurring the lines of 
of kingdom vision versus worldly vision, problems start to pop up. Right? Because I'm distancing myself from God, like I talked about earlier. And, and how weird it is that life seems to be harder when I distance myself from God. Then when I'm close to God, it seems like life, man, this isn't so bad. In verse 13, the Master responds, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a demerit? First thing that pops out, it was nice of him to call me a friend. You know, I'd probably be like, hey, I'm the master. Do what I say. He calls me a friend. Appreciate that. And then in verse 14, he goes on and says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. God chooses. The master chooses. It's his decision. The I choose clone, or excuse me, phrase, as who tells us who's in charge? I choose. You don't choose. You don't get to decide. I know what's right because I told each and every person that I'm going to give them what's right. So God chooses. Nobody else. He goes on right after that and says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, he pretty much, in my opinion, he says, You think you can do better? You think you know what you're doing? Or do you have a problem with me being generous? Which one is it? Both of them, you're going to be wrong. And so um, it just again hammers home the fact that God is in control. He is in charge. And if you align with His vision, things will be good for you. And I'm sure it was probably easy for the 11th hour workers to probably be standing behind the mask and going, yeah, yeah, we, we get it. We get the same as you. And it's easy to rally around them when you're on that side of it. But if you can align with God's vision on the front end, what an easier life it will be for you to be close to God and align with His vision and see all the things that He has for you. And He closes it up and says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And again, King James gets the short end of the stick here. And he goes on in the King James Version and says, Many are called, but few are chosen. And I think that's really, the, that's the sink, you know, that's the hook line that gets you. Right? Because so many are called, but few are chosen. Because a lot of people are called, but because their mind is so clouded, they, they don't want to take it. They think with the worldly mindset. And so even though this kingdom vision is presented to them, it doesn't look as appealing. It, it doesn't look as good to them. And all the things that they miss, all the things we sang about, I love that you guys are sticking to the hymnal, by the way. I told my pastor we need more of that. All those, all those hymns that we sing that talk about um, God's faithfulness, His grace, all those sorts of things, they're in line with His vision. And if we don't align with the vision, we're going to miss those things. We need to be the few that are chosen. And we need to accept that each and every day. And so, um, so we've got this kingdom vision versus this worldly vision. And I've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And really the issue is, okay, great, because this is what I was told as a young coach, don't bring me problems if you don't have solutions. 
Okay? So I've brought you a problem, and I really haven't talked about solutions much. Okay? So the problem we all know is that we have a kingdom vision versus a worldly vision, and we get trapped into that worldly vision. But what are the solutions? What are the things that we can do? The best way I could summarize it, in order for us to have a kingdom vision, we must submit to God, His order, His justice. When we don't, we are actively sinning or rebelling against God. If you don't submit to Him, His justice, His vision, everything that He has aligned, like I talked about earlier, you are actively rebelling against God. You are saying, my worldly vision, my constructs, they're better, or they make more sense. Okay? I don't think that these people are necessarily saying that they were better than the Master, but they were saying that you know, our way kind of makes more sense if you think about it. We've worked harder. We deserve more stuff. But that's wrong. That's against God. Romans 12.2 tells us to renew our minds daily. So that would be step one in how we align with the kingdom vision. How do we you know, make sure that on Tuesday I don't go back to my worldly vision? Well, you need to renew your minds each and every day. And all those, um, all those verses that we post up or at home, you know, I do it on post-it notes at work, all those sorts of things, they need, to, they need to be daily reminders for us to renew our minds. That's step one. Um, speaking of old hymns, Keep our eyes on Jesus and the world becomes strangely dim. The more time I, I heard this, um, uh, I was probably about 21. I was sitting in a Crown College chapel, in fact. We had a guest speaker come. And, uh, and he was in charge of all of youth ministry for all of the CMA. He worked out of Colorado Springs. But he talked about, it's a very, very simple equation. The more time you spend with God equals the less you sin. Blew me away. Didn't think of it that way, ever. The more time I spend with God, the less I sin. And so, if I keep my eyes on Jesus, the world becomes strangely dim. The more time I focus on God, and so this is what I tell our young guys all the time. What kind of music you listen to? Oh, I listen to this and this and that. Weird that you're not getting fulfilled by God. What kind of movies you watch and TV shows? I watch, you know, whatever's on HBO and blah, blah, blah. Weird that you're not, you're not getting fulfilled by Jesus. All the things that you're putting in, all the time that you're spending is away from God. So why would you feel close to God? Of course you feel distant. It's the same thing that, you know, kind of happens in churches all the time. You know, pastors or churches or leadership councils, they have this, this vision that this is what we need to do. Maybe this is the building we need to build, or this is the ministry we need to go. And they keep trying to fit the square peg in the round hole because they think they know. This is what we need to do. And, and then when it doesn't work, where is God when we need Him? We never asked Him to be a part of it to begin with, so why would He help you now? The more time that you are invested in God, the less you will sin and the more He will bless you. The more time you can align with that kingdom vision, He will bless you. And this is kind of my final, my final conclusion. And we'll go to Matthew 16. So a couple, couple pages ahead. Um, Jesus describes His death again and how he, needs, how he needs to die. How He needs to be resurrected. And... Uh, 
and I'm sure many of you know Peter. Okay, Peter has this trait where he can uh, he can put his foot in his mouth at times, and I I know that all too well. I've done it myself. But here in Matthew 16, and I'm going to go in verses 22, Peter um, maybe sticks both of his feet in his mouth. I don't know if he can do it, but he figured out a way. Okay, so Jesus describes his death and, and what he must do. And I do think of it from Peter's perspective. He just had this great, you know, the ride of his life. He's been following around this guy, performing miracles. They've done all these things. And now Jesus is telling him, it's got to end. I've got to go. I'm going to leave. That's what I have to do. And so poor Peter broken up. In verse 22, Peter takes a side and began to rebuke him. Peter starts thinking worldly here. He starts thinking, I'm going to tell you what needs to happen, Jesus, because you, you, you're thinking crazy. Okay? If I could give you some advice, never take Jesus aside. Jesus will take you aside. Okay? But anyway, Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Don't tell, don't tell God what's going to happen. I learned that mistake on a, on a far less level with work, but don't do it. It's not good advice. And he turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And there again, you see that. You're not thinking like me. You're not thinking my vision. You're thinking your own vision. You're thinking about yourself and what's good for you. You're thinking with a worldly mindset and not a kingdom mindset. Because probably in Peter's mind, he's thinking, we're doing so many great things. We're helping all these people. We're going town to town. You're saving people. Why would you die and go? We've still got so much work to do. But because he's thinking in the day, you know, the now and not eternal... Sure, I could, I could help and, and we could meet more people. But if I die on the cross, you understand this is going to carry on for eternity. Right? If I just stay here, it just stays now. And Peter doesn't think in the terms of the kingdom. He thinks in the terms of the world and the here and the now. And he thinks that he knows better than God. He took him aside. Very, very dangerous mindset. But the thing that always stood out to me is get behind me, Satan. And, um, and if you study the Greek or the Hebrew, and you take that word Satan, and it means not, not a uh, horned figure with uh, a tail and a pitchfork, but it means the opposition, the adversary. These are the definitions of the word translated into our English. And so when I think about how he says, get behind me, Satan, and it's one of the few times that Jesus has an exclamation point to what he's saying, so I'm sure our authors were like, oh man, he's getting after it right now. He's getting after Peter. But get behind me, Satan. You are opposing me. What you are saying, your worldly vision, is the opposite of what I need from you. Some some theologians will say that like Satan had somehow worked his way into Peter and, and Jesus could see it, and it was almost like he was filled with a demon at the time. But I think that Jesus is really just saying, what you are doing is what Satan would do. Get behind me, opposition, because I can't deal with you right now. 
You're the opposite of everything I need you to do. You need to align with my vision, the things of God, and your thinking about the things of man. And so my final point is to align with God's kingdom vision, we must accept our job as the workers, his job as the master, trust our master will do what is right, anything else would be satanic. And I know that that's harsh. And, uh, and some, of the, some of the chapels I have, I've done and things like that, I've had pastors tell me, ah, you really shouldn't say something like that. That's, that's a little, that comes off a little harsh. But I think Jesus is harsh sometimes. Sometimes he gives us the exact thing that we need to hear. And for me, I know that this spoke to me when I read that under a kingdom vision. When I read what Jesus had to say to Peter and how it was satanic for him to try to tell him one thing, now every time I think kingdom vision versus worldly vision, all I think is, do I want to be godly or do I want to be satanic? Because that's really the two options. And in my notes, I don't know that I had mentioned this, but right when Jesus says, I'll give you what's right, that's very black and white. And I'll give you what is fair, that have some gray areas. To me, there's no gray areas in Christ. There's black and there's white. And so to align with the kingdom vision is very clear cut. And so to not align with it, again, would be clear cut. One way is of God and one way is of not. And however we phrase it, however we dress it up, sometimes as a church we want to dress it up in a nice way so everybody feels good. You can do it that way, but it doesn't change the definition. And the definition is that it's very clear cut. You are either the things of God or you are the things of man. And so, for us, renew every day. Every day, renew your minds to be the things of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let the rest of the world become strangely dim. Spend more time with God equals less sin. And as I started with, continue, continue, continue to encourage and and be with this generation that's coming up in the church. And I don't necessarily just mean young people. That's not what I'm talking about in generation. But I'm talking about new believers. They could be 95. They could be 5. Whoever you're bringing into this church and encouraging... Make sure that you're encouraging them in God's Word, that you're bringing them along with this kingdom vision. Because it doesn't matter if they're coming at the first hour or the eleventh hour of their own life. They're coming. And they're going to get the reward. But it's up to us as the workers to bring them along. I imagine that when that new crew of workers came in at the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the beginning workers had to show them, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing to get to get everything ready. We got to show them the way a little bit, and now we can hit the ground running. But so the same thing for your church and your church body and our church body. It's all Christ's body. Can we encourage and can we bring along and can we can we grow Christ's body in the way that it should be grown into a kingdom vision, or will we be distracted by our our vision? Thank you for and listening so, to our podcast. And so, we're going to sing again. Minitrista Baptist but Church is a community of Christ think followers about kingdom who value preaching and teaching scripture, biblical obedience, community, prayer, and evangelism. But always, always, if you'd like to learn more about Minitrista Baptist Church, please visit our website at minitristachurch.org and come by for a Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you.